The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. The title of the talk tonight is uh, Who Do You Think You Are? And it follows a talk last week on perception. Uh, we talked about how the mind uh, labels things and then lives within those labels and indeed labels things based on about 5% of the available data. Uh, and the way we each label things can be different. I was talking about uh, my uh, narrow labels, my narrow vision in a coffee shop and somebody else might have a very broad way of doing it but then miss other kinds of data. So it isn't like you know, we're supposed to be this or we're supposed to be that, but that our perceptions uh, really, by necessity, have to limit the amount of data that we can process at any given uh, time. Um, and that, But the problem is that we tend to live within those perceptions um, as though that was reality or that was what was true. And so I wanted to follow that this week with a talk on um, how we use those perceptions to create a, a sense of self. And um, I was reading uh, Guy Armstrong's uh, new book on emptiness, and he, he says, there's more going on than meets the eye. Close observation, pointed questions, and sustained reflection are keys to unlock the gates. Um, close observation, investigation, and sustained personal reflection are the keys. We've talked about that a lot, you know, that it's not just trying to understand or you know, coming and having a really uh, clever Dharma talk or reading a great book, but really looking closely. How does this really work? Or does it really work yeah. the way... Um, the way the words say. Um, and sometimes investigating and really overcoming significant obstacles are needed. Um, I talked last week about uh, a man who was blind and who had regained the ability to see and really had to work very, very hard to incorporate that data um, into his way of organizing the world. So the, the point there was just the effort that it sometimes can take for us to incorporate new data. We, sometimes when we meditate, we notice that when we bump into difficulties and we, and we really um, see how hard it can be. Or for that matter, just simply reading the news um, to really allow our data pool, if you will, to be a little bigger. Um, Guy Armstrong says he loves a good mystery. And so it really helps him in his meditation practice. He likes to read mysteries. He likes mystery movies. Um, and all of the Buddhist teachings invite us into mystery. Uh, they invite us to really look and see, to contemplate. How does this work? Does this work? And one of the mysteries, the 
one of the really kind of foundational mysteries that the Buddha teaches is that all beings, all beings, are fundamentally but one aspect, one manifestation of infinite beauty, love, and light. Everyone. You know, and I think of just like this, the sound of a gong as the, um, the kind of uh, light. Just that beautiful sound. And that every single being, every single being is fundamentally that that light, that infinite, luminous, holy light. That means you. That means the person sitting next to you. That means your relatives, your co-workers, That means Nelson Mandela and Pope Francis and Mother Teresa. It means all those politicians that you read about in the newspaper this morning. It means uh, Roy Moore. It means Osama bin Laden. That at base, the Buddha teaches, and indeed all of the mystical teaching tra traditions teach, fundamentally, that all beings are luminous, beings of light. There is no separation. There's only light and wholeness. that light gets obscured in more or less profound ways. We've noticed that, too. But they're just obscurations. They're just ways that our vision gets clouded. Many years ago, I worked um, at the children's re what was then the Children's Rehab Center. Um, and... Uh, we had a pretty big staff of people. And one of the people who worked there was named Lester. And in the chain of command, Lester was at the bottom. He was a child care attendant. Um, he was one of the people who um, cleaned up the vomit and uh, took the kids who were acting out in some unpleasant way, took care of them, or changed the dirty sheets and swept the floors. Um, he was one of those people that can be sort of invisible in our world. One day I was working with Lester with a child who was very severely autistic, really difficult, very difficult child. I don't even remember what exactly we were doing or why the two of us were working together. But at one moment, I saw him. I saw that. I saw that being of light. 
I saw it through his kind of funny-looking features, his lankiness, his odd way of speaking, through his way of withdrawing and just being part of the furniture. I saw him. And I fell in love. And indeed, we fell in love in, in just an incredibly beautiful way. Um, because we fell into that place of just being. It was an incredible gift. It was apropos of nothing in particular. I just saw him. And then we went on with whatever it was we were doing. But I remember it because it was such an amazing gift and such an important window into that mystery. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, there's more going on here than our perceptions and our stories will tell us about. In our practice, we're invited to learn to relax into a gradual awakening and indeed to be available to those moments of seeing. I've had a number of them in my life where just suddenly I just saw somebody in such a surprising way into the wisdom of non-separation and the delight of that into the opening of possibility and the ending of suffering. The ending of suffering. Individual suffering. Relational suffering. And so our whole practice really is about learning to cultivate the capacity to rest in mystery. And any teachings that we do, any teachings like now, any teachings tonight, are really just sort of very poor approximations, sort of pointing awkwardly in that direction, inviting us into the mystery, inviting us, if you will, into that you know, detective novel. How does this work? Really? Roy Moore? Really? I was talking about him last week. I seem to be obsessed with Roy Moore. Uh, I actually I kind of am. Um, but we, we kind of, in our, in our ordinary life, we, we have these constructions of this is who I am. You know, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is who I am. And then we go on to cultivate and assign the language of this and that and separation and self and other to all the beings and all sorts of hierarchies and all sorts of gradations and all sorts of rules about it. Yeah. We'll work a little bit more, you know, um, Guy talks about that kind of reflection or really investigation. We'll work a little bit more with the um, investigation of this, by the way, at the uh, January retreat, if you're interested in doing that. But for the moment, I'd just like you to contemplate who do you think you are? You know, if 
you know, somebody, um, actually somebody did ask me just the other day, um, somebody just uh, turned to me and said, who are you? You know? And if some, you know, well, who are you? Contemplate for just a minute. How would you, how do you answer that question? Who are you? We can characterize ourselves in all sorts of ways. What do you come up with? Who are you? Words. What do you get? Good? Hmm? Father? That's it? Come on. What else? The sum of my experiences. A mystery. Julie. A field of possibilities. Learning. What? Flood. How about just physically? How about just uh, ordin- you know, ordinary? Uh, are you a girl? A boy? Grown-up woman? Tall? Short? Fat? Skinny? Married? Single? Mother, father, stepmother. It took me. I'm a stepmother, and it took me about a year after I was married to figure that out. <laughs> Other people are stepmothers, but not me. Yeah. You know, we identify ourselves. We can kind of pick ourselves out of a picture huh? by all sorts of characteristics. Really, some of them fairly mundane. And indeed, in our world today, there are all sorts of really fairly mundane characteristics that divide us, aren't there? You know, things like race or class or political affiliation. In China, I've told you this before, in China, my freckles were a division. I didn't quite realize it fully at the time, but I now understand that in China, freckles are considered a very unfortunate birth defect. (laughs) I was kind of glad I didn't know that at the time. You know, poor thing. But it really, I mean, it's how we characterize people by the color of their skin, by how much money they make. Who they are. So we have all sorts of ways that we can kind of characterize somebody as me or not me. We can do it by, you know, how people dress. Oh, this one's better. We'll put this one over here. By how much people know. 
This is the collected works of Ajahn Chah. He's one of our major teachers, you know, by how much people know. Um, oh, you know, by whether or not they give a good Dharma talk. You know, so that we can really take all of these characteristics and, um, and the net result is more like that talking to each other. And then we take that to be what's real. Ajahn Chah talks about, um, he says, we're all, um, oh, actually, it's right here. It's in this smart book. He says, the mind, he says, we're like rainwater, pure in its natural state. If we were to drop green coloring into clear rainwater, however, it would turn green. Hmm. If we were to drop yellow coloring, it would turn yellow. If we are to drop these kinds of, you know, definitions or perceptions or characteristics um, onto and into our sense of ourselves or our sense of others, it really obscures that clarity. It obscures that light. Um, and more and more modern research is really um, agreeing with the Buddha about this. It's really pretty awesome. It's really fun. It can kind of whittle my days away reading some of the research. Um, modern science, um, in looking at gender, you know, we sort of typically imagine that there are two genders, you know, there's male and female, right? I actually was sort of surprised the other day. I was on a form and they only offered me two options. And I was really kind of, really? Don't you guys know where we are? Uh, Facebook has 56 possibilities. And I saw another study where they had 63. But even so, um, the thought is that gender as a, combination of our assessment of physical characteristics, genitals and DNA, personality, typical interests and behavior, and preference of how somebody expresses themselves emotionally, romantically, and or sexually, those combinations can literally um, uh, make thousands of possibilities. So, you know, we can... Uh, be struggling over which bathroom to use. Uh, but we actually would need 63 at least. Um, because gender is really something that is fundamentally socially constructed. We come to agree that this is how we talk about things. This is how we perceive things. This is how we define it. Race. Race is a classification system used, here I've, I've got this from the web, used to categorize humans into large and distinct populations or groups by anatomical, cultural, ethnic, genetic, geographical, historical, linguistic, religious, and or social affiliation. It was first used to refer to speakers of a common language and then to denote national affiliations in the 17th century. Um, 
in the 17th century, people began to use the term to relate to observable physical traits. Such use promoted hierarchies favorable to different ethnic groups. There is wide consensus that the racial categories that are common in everyday usage are completely socially constructed and that racial groups cannot be biologically defined. It's made up. It's made up. It's a perception of a physical, maybe a physical characteristic, to which we put words and then we live within those constructs. It's socially constructed. Class, the same sort of thing. Marriage is the same sort of thing. Um, that marriage is, matrimony is actually a constantly changing social institution. I won't go into the details there. Um, but the whole notion, you know, that marriage is this. For example, it used to be purely economic and political exchange. Uh, you know, among families in different countries. Or it could be a purely economic exchange uh, when women were, um, we needed uh, protection. Um, so a marriage of an 11 year old to uh, a man who would protect her. And we still see some of that today. So marriage is also socially constructed. We get together we have an idea about things. We put words to it, and then we live within those words, and then we start fighting with one another about which clunker is right. You know? And we go to war over those concepts. And the Buddha saw all that um, in his own experience. This is Joanna Macy. She says, much of what we know comes not from our immediate experience, but from constructs that have been created by our previous conditioning, which in turn have conditioned our processing of our current experience. The environment is not perceived immaculately, but rather is recognized and interpreted in terms of forms we have learned to see. Once we have been established, this is Rodney Smith, we start to believe that reality is external to ourselves. We then start perceiving and arranging the data to suit our desires and fears. And then we act upon reality as if it could be aligned with our needs and wants. That is when all hell breaks loose because reality is not divided and acting upon reality as if we were separate creates the pain and suffering of the world. Acting upon reality as if we were separate creates the pain and suffering of the world. Acting upon reality as if we were separate, as if we were separate. 
So at a mundane, ordinary level, we tend to be completely identified with these constructs. We live within them, we believe them. The goal, the evolutionary goal of that kind of a process is safety and survival, and indeed to some extent separation, to the extent that this territory is ours, uh, and the berries, this, this territory is occupied already, um, the sex partners belong to us, and the berries belong to us. You know, it's an evolutionary strategy for survival. So it's not like it's a terrible thing we do. It's actually necessary in many, many ways. It was useful at the Children's Rehab Center for Lester and me to each have a sense of where our own, um, uh, what our own job descriptions were where our own offices were, where our own homes were, where our own cars were. Uh, it was useful to know those things. Um, so it's useful, it's functional, it's practical, it helps us divide really large amounts of data into kind of functional holes. The challenge is that we tend to believe those divisions as though they were true and as though they somehow reflected some fundamental truth about reality. So the invitation that the Buddha offers us is to be aware of those. It, you know, he, he never said that you know, the separate, uh, separate self doesn't exist. He never said that. He just said that it doesn't exist in the way we think it does. and invited us to be a, uh, quite a bit less um, convinced about it all. The problem with these divisions is that our own, you know, our own, we, in our own sense, we tend to sense that there's something missing. And the problem is that we tend to try to then fix the specifics rather than drop deeper. So, you know, like there's something missing, there's something incomplete about me. And that's absolutely true. There is something incomplete. But it isn't that somehow if I didn't have freckles, that would be better. You know, that isn't what's incomplete. That isn't the problem. Or if, you know, I weighed less, or if I was taller or shorter or smarter or knew more dharma or whatever, you know, whatever it is that we kind of make up. Or if I didn't have those parents that I had, or if I was never angry, or what, whatever it is that our mind says is the right way to be. Uh, that those, you know, when we get kind of collapsed inside of those constructs, that's where we get in trouble. Um, because we want to fix it, we want to collapse into it, really feel badly about ourselves because we're like this and not that. Um, we'll take it for granted in some ways. I'm better because of this or worse because of this. Or we need to fight it. We need to fight either internally, we need to fight with aspects of ourselves, or externally, we need to fight with difference externally. You know, that there's something that can't be included but it's all an idea. It's all an idea.
we can take profound awakened consciousness to mean something uniquely special about one particular being. You know, I can't be enlightened. But somebody can be, someplace. And profound unconsciousness, you know, when my gong is filled to the brim, profound unconsciousness, when I can't hear or see anything of the light, it would seem to be something fundamentally flawed, either about me or somebody else. When all it means, really, is that the gong is pretty full. And pretty, you know, uh, covered over. Or in Ajahn Chah's words, that the water has been pretty clouded. And we've taken it to mean, um, to mean something real. We neglect and reject the unfolding mystery and decline to investigate the mystery enough to unfold it and or enough to just see through it when those moments come. You know, when I was there with Lester, it wasn't like I was thinking anything in particular about seeing him. It just happened. It was a gift of grace that that just was there in that moment. And they happen all the time for us and we often don't see because we're so kind of locked into our concepts. We can't really understand how to work with separation, how to work with racism or sexism, how to work with the political rancor, we can't really understand how to work with it um, unless we understand that we're not ever really separate in the first place. Because if we think we're separate and somebody has to be fixed, it's an invitation to war. We can know that somebody is kind of, you know, f- full up and not really all that available. <laughs> we can know that. But then the challenge really is to kind of see through that and work through that, whether it's individually with myself where, you know, I'm kind of clouded over by something that happened to me or with somebody else who I can discern um, is clouded over. We also don't even, we don't have to like spend a lot of time with people whose gongs are kind of piled high. Um, But how we think about it matters and how we you know consider ourselves and how we consider others uh, matters and it's really how we make sense of the Buddhist teaching on hatred never ceases by hatred otherwise it's sort of like one person just kind of being nice to somebody else or one person being a victim of somebody else But if we go back to Guy Armstrong's sense of, you know, living in the mystery, um, the sense of, okay, how do I relate to this? You know, what, if anything, is there for me to do 
with us. And that really is, is the inquiry, the investigation. Uh, but not because any of these divisions are somehow fundamentally real. So our practice is about awareness. Awareness. Cultivating the capacity to know experience directly, both internally and externally. To be available for it. And to notice when our constructs, when our perceptions, as I was talking about last week, when our perceptions, when our constructs, when our narratives are keeping us locked into some kind of self other, um, this or that, up or down, right or wrong, distinction that really is leading to more suffering. Um, so we work with it conceptually. You know, I give a talk about it. Okay. But then the Buddha invites us to reflect and to investigate. You know, how does this work for me? And how does this work for that person that I want to so badly make other? You know, how does it work for me in relation to that person that I want to make other? How can I be with that? How can I investigate that? How does the mystery manifest there? Um, there's more going on than meets the eye. Um, so the goal is to investigate this and relax. To just relax, to allow ourselves to be Sherlock Holmes, to allow ourselves to investigate the mystery. To be curious. Not just in a mental way, but directly in our experience with that person that you sat across the Thanksgiving table from. That one, you know or that person that you read about in the news. How do I be with this without going to war? Hmm? How do I be with this following the Buddha's teaching, hatred never ceases by hatred? How do I be with this? And we don't necessarily know automatically. Hmm? And we don't necessarily do it right automatically. But it's our practice. It's how to have the practice become a living thing um, as we explore and deepen. Um, to paraphrase something that Ajahn Chah said, he says, if we relax a little, we will have a little peace. If we relax a lot, we will have a lot of peace. And here he's talking about letting go of these concepts. Mm, no. Not so much letting go of the concepts or the perceptions, but letting go of our addiction to them, letting go of our identification with them. Um, if we relax a little, we will have a little peace. If we relax a lot, we will have a lot of peace. If we relax completely, we will have complete peace. Our troubles with the world will have come to an end. That's pretty amazing. that the challenge is to relax completely 
How does that work? That can't be right, you know? If we relax completely, our troubles with the world will have come to an end. And this is uh, Rainer Maria Rilke the, in Letters to a Young Poet. He says, believe in a love that is being stored up for you like an inheritance and have faith that in this love there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside it. Believe in a love that is being stored up for you like an inheritance. It's there. So the faith to believe in it and to investigate it and live within it. That's our practice. So when we notice that we think we are something or we think somebody else is something, to begin to investigate that and maybe not take it as quite so real. Okay, I think I'll stop there. Thank you.